Now celebrating our 23rd year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1,213 with a release and air date of Saturday, May 28, 2022. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Well, good day to you. It's time for another romp around the ether to see what's happening within the world of amateur radio and more. You have stumbled into edition number 1,213 of This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with this week's newscast. The Dayton Hamvention 2022 and the ARRL Expo are in the books. The gathering was considered a complete success. We will have team coverage of the Hamvention. The 20th annual ARRL Donor Recognition Reception was held as part of the Hamvention. We will have the details. The spring round of section manager elections has been tabulated. We will bring you the results. The ARRL RF Safety Committee Chairman received an award from the RSGB. We will tell you all about that. The ARRL was recently honored by the Masons in Newington, Connecticut. The Dayton Hamvention Contest Dinner sees the CQ Magazine Hall of Fame members for 2022 inducted. The summer edition of the Global Radio Guide has been published. The Amateur Radio Division of Heil Sound has been rebranded. We will tell you about that. And kids are amateurs too. We will tell you about some kids, all under 12 years old, who passed their general and extra exams at the Dayton Hamvention. All this and a lot more is coming up on this, our Hamvention Wrap-Up Special Edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT on what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, wonders how far should cybersecurity go when it comes to private messaging applications and social media. He will also explain what cookies are and how the new European Union regulation applies to them. Australia's own Arnold Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will talk about his recent encounter with the thunder and lightning that recently destroyed part of his station. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill looks at comics in amateur radio magazines as he comes to air with a segment titled after one of his favorite amateur radio comics of the past, Over and Out. And... Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, covers everything you need to know to install and maintain your tower and antenna installation for your station. This week, Greg looks at the best ways to deal with something all amateurs encounter on their antennas, rusty bolts. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Celebrating our three-day weekend, you've got George W2XBS, This Week in Amateur Radio's executive producer, and this week, partial newsreader from our studio right here in Albany, New York. 
And reporting from the newsroom in Half Moon, New York, I'm Terry Saunders, N1KIN. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from New York's Catskill Mountain region, where the first garden crop of asparagus and lettuce has made it to our table, the sweet corn is up two inches, and the neighbors are cutting the first of the hay, I'm Don Hulick, K2ATJ. And reporting from our Troy, New York News Bureau, where the cottonwoods are just starting to get going, I'm Eric, KD2RJX. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, I'm Fred, November Fox, 2Fox. And reporting from our News Bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where spring and summer are having their annual battle, cool one day, warm the next, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. And now with this week's lead story, here is Terry Saunders, N1KIN. Leading off our news this week is our special coverage of the just-concluded Dayton Hamvention. By all accounts, the 2022 Dayton Hamvention, which also served as the 70th reunion, was a great success. After two years of pandemic cancellations, thousands of ham radio operators, their families and friends, and other enthusiasts passed through the gate during its three-day run, May 20th through the 22nd, at the Greene County Fairgrounds and Expo Center in Xenia, Ohio. Local reports estimate the event brings over $30 million to the economy of the Dayton metropolitan region. Official numbers and estimates will be available soon, but judging by reports from attendees, people were definitely ready to come back. The weather was typical for Hamvention, and a storm did come through late on Saturday, but anyone who's been to Hamvention knows that rain is nothing unusual. The vendor buildings were fairly full, with a few noticeable vendors from years past absent, such as Kenwood, but those that did set up had, by all accounts, a good amount of traffic. ARRL's large exhibit area, ARRL Expo, included a steady flow of visitors who were treated to a variety of exhibits representing popular membership programs and services. More than a dozen booths were led by a team of 80-plus program representatives and volunteers that included members of the ARRL staff, board of directors, and field organization. Using the theme, Be Radioactive, ARRL also organized many hamvention forums to encourage attendees to become more active and involved with amateur radio. An ARRL Youth Outreach Forum on Friday highlighted resources and ideas for attracting and developing young hams. ARRL Education and Learning Manager Steve Goodgame, K5ATA, led the crowd of attendees through a highly interactive session discussing strategies, tools, and reasons for engaging youth. Centered around the theme of how and why to engage youth in amateur radio, forum attendees participated in discussion groups and shared their findings throughout the forum. The entire presentation was recorded by Josh Nass, KI6NAZ, and can be viewed on his YouTube channel, Ham Radio Crash Course. Good Games participation also included exhibits for ARRL education and learning programs and the Teachers Institute. Both booths were very busy during the entire convention, he said. We made a concerted effort to draw on not only ham radio instructors and others interested in our educational programs, but youth themselves. Young hams and prospective hams were surveyed by volunteer Cindy Goodgame, K5CYN, about their experiences and interests with amateur radio for the purpose of gaining insightful data to help drive future ARRL programming and outreach. Attendees who were not licensed or were seeking upgrades were shown tools and techniques to help them prepare for their ham radio license exam, said Goodgame. Some even returned to the booth after passing their exams. 
ARRL Teachers Institute instructors Larry Kendall, K6NDL, and Wayne Green, KB4DSF, demonstrated some activities that teachers who attend the professional development program are taught and take back to their classrooms. Adults and youth were given information on the program to take back to their schools with the goal of continuing to grow the Teachers Institute. An October 2022 session of the Teachers Institute is planned. ARRL Radio Sport and Regulatory Information Manager Bart Yonke, W9JJ, described the busy radio sport booth where attendees could have their QSL cards checked by volunteers for popular ARRL award programs, including DXCC. Nearly a thousand cards were checked. He also transported nearly 60 pounds of cards back to ARRL headquarters, destined for the outgoing QSL Bureau. Yankee also kicked off the ARRL Field Day Forum on Friday, which included advice for anyone planning to take part in the popular annual event. 2022 Field Day is June 25th and 26th, 2022. Joined by his co-presenters, Yankee focused on the new Field Day rules. ARRL Director of Operations Bob Nauman, W5OV, offered operating tips including how to make your Field Day site safe by addressing generator safety, cord management, area lighting, and lightning protection. ARRL Public Relations Committee member Scott Roberts, KK4ECR, covered ways to promote ARRL Field Day to maximize attention from the community and local media. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. And now, our extensive coverage of the Dayton Hamvention continues with our own Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. At the nearby ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator Booth, VEC Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, said traffic was brisk. Visitors conveyed positive feedback and comments about the program and the new Youth Licensing Grant program. We fielded hundreds of questions about our programs, the FCC application fees and rules, and license application filings, said SOMA. Over 90 prospective volunteer examiner packages were given out. The team also accepted applications for license renewals and changes and re-enlisted VEs with expired accreditations. Attendees appreciated our support and booth presence for licensing questions, she added. The VEC booth shared its space with the ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program. A highlight for visitors was the participation of ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program consultant Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, and FCC District 3 Enforcement Bureau Director Lark Hadley, KA4A. Janky, Hollingsworth, and Hadley presented a volunteer monitor forum on Saturday, summarizing the positive impact of the program over the past couple years, its cooperative and productive partnership with the FCC on enforcement issues, and with an emphasis on encouraging good operating practices. ARRL Director of Emergency Management, Josh Johnston, KE5MHV, coordinated and operated the Amateur Radio Emergency Service booth. His team included Section Emergency Coordinators, Public Information Coordinators, and Vice Directors. 
It was great to interact with hams from around the country at the booth and gather input from them, said Johnston. He also led the Aries Forum on Friday, where Johnston shared opportunities for radio amateurs to train and volunteer to serve their communities. He also covered the importance of building relations with local emergency management agencies and building a strong team. He included panelists from around the country who discussed their experiences and successes from within their local area's community, as well as ways to encourage new involvement at the local level. Johnston also toured an MCOM vehicle exposition hosted by Hamvention. The time, money, and care that MCOM groups and individuals have committed to these vehicles is remarkable and truly a valuable asset to their communities in preparing for any emergency, he said. A large membership and sales area invited attendees to join ARRL and to renew their membership. Team members were on hand to answer questions about accessing membership benefits and services. A variety of ARRL publications and products were stocked to peruse and purchase. Favorites included an NFED half-wave antenna kit, ARRL license manuals, and 2022 ARRL field day gear. Several ARRL authors and editors were hosted, engaging attendees with their contributions to ARRL magazines, books, and online content. Included were QST columnists, Dave Kassler, KE0OG, QST Product Review Editor, Pascal Villeneuve, VA2PV, and ARRL News Editor, John E. Ross, KD8IDJ, National Contest Journal Editor, Lee Finkel, KY7M, added to the celebration of the journal's 50 years of publication. Author Glenn Popiel, KW5GP, discussed and signed copies of his newest ARRL book, More Arduino for Ham Radio. Other ARRL exhibits in the expo included ARRL-affiliated club benefits and resources for radio clubs, the Collegiate Amateur Radio Program, handheld radio testing by the ARRL Lab, and the ARRL Great Lakes Division, which is Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio. Attendees could also meet and greet ARRL officers. An ARRL membership forum was held on Saturday afternoon and moderated by Great Lakes Division Director Dale Williams, W8EFK. The forum included presentations on behalf of the ARRL Historical Committee presented by Midwest Vice Director David Proper, K2DP, and the Legislative Advocacy Committee presented by West Gulf Division Director John Robert Stratton, N5AUS. The forum concluded with remarks from ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, and ARRL Chief Executive Officer David Minster, NA2AA. Addressing the membership forum, President Roderick recognized the important contribution of nearly 7,000 ARRL field organization volunteers across the country who contribute to strengthening ARRL and amateur radio and serve their communities. Roderick also urged members to help grow our next generation of radio amateurs by recruiting and developing young hams. 
There were also many off-site events, including open houses at DARA and the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting. We extend our congratulations to the Hamvention Committee and all of the DARA volunteers on a job well done. It was good to see Hamvention return. A video of the ARRL forum is available on the League's YouTube channel, and you can see photos of the ARRL Expo on the League's Facebook page. The 20th Annual ARRL Donor Recognition Reception was held on Thursday, May 19, 2022, at the Schuster Center Winter Garden in Dayton, Ohio. Over 160 ARRL donors and their guests were in attendance. The keynote speaker for the evening was ARRL Chief Executive Officer David Minster, NA2AA. The event preceded Dayton Hamvention. What does amateur radio mean to you, asked Minster as he addressed the gathering. Maybe it was belonging when you were a teenager, joining your school or local club. Perhaps it gave you confidence in your math and science skills so that you chose a field like engineering for your studies. How did amateur radio influence your career choices? And perhaps all those things, as they did for me, were topped off by the fact that I have made lifelong friends through amateur radio. This is my community, and no matter where I travel in life, I am among my friends. ARRL Development Manager Melissa Stemmer, KA7CLO, emceed the reception, which also included remarks by ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR. At the end of the evening, Stemmer recognized 64 new members of the ARRL Maxim Society for their cumulative lifetime donations through 2019, 2020, and 2021. Another 19 members were recognized for advancing up to a higher giving class. All Maxim Society members in attendance joined the new members on stage for a group photo. The Maxim Society currently includes 333 members. It was wonderful to meet and engage with current and prospective donors, said Stemmer. This was my first Dayton Hamvention, and it was amazing to finally meet so many generous ARRL donors who, up to now, I have only been able to speak with on the phone. Throughout Hamvention weekend, Stemmer was present in the combined ARRL Development and ARRL Foundation booth, joined by volunteers from the ARRL Board of Directors and the ARRL Foundation Board of Directors. You are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net. Chairman of the ARRL RF Safety Committee, Gregory D. Lappin, and the 9GL accepted an award at the 2022 Dayton Hamvention from the Radio Society of Great Britain on Friday, May 20th. The Founders Trophy was presented by RSGB President Stuart Bryant, G3YSX, and recognizes outstanding service to the Society. 
Lapin accepted the awards for fellow committee members Kai Siliak, KE4PT, Rick Tell, K5UJU, and Matt Butcher, KC3WD. Along with the members of the RSGB, the ARRL RF Safety Committee members formed an EMF oversight group, which has been meeting since August 2020, to help develop tools and procedures for complying with the new RF exposure regulations for amateur radio operators in Great Britain. The new rules in the UK are similar to those already in effect in the United States. The new rules will be phased in over a two-year period and are currently in effect for high-band frequencies only. RSGB members of the EMF Oversight Group are John Rogers, M0JAV, RSGB Director, Peter Zalman, G4DSE, and Ian White, GM3SEK who received their awards at the Society's annual general meeting on April 23rd during an online ceremony. To learn more about the Radio Society of Great Britain, visit rsgb.org. The annual Dayton Contest Dinner, held during the Hamvention weekend on May 21st, saw the induction of two new members into the CQ Contest Hall of Fame. Recipient David Pascoe, KM3T is well known for his championships and record scores, as well as his charitable work as a volunteer pilot for those with medical needs. Craig Thompson, K9CT, developer of the North American Collegiate Championship Program, was the other recipient recognized for his work with Contest University and numerous other initiatives. CQ's Amateur Radio Hall of Fame added seven new names, three of whom are silent keys. They are the late jazz pianist Robert Ringwald, K6YBV, Franklin Antonio, N6NKF, philanthropist and co-founder of chipmaker Qualcomm, and Wolf Heranth, OE1WHC, stroke OE3WHC, Radio Austria International Broadcast Journalist. The other inductees are Scott Wright, K0MD, Mayo Clinic physician leading the team developing COVID-19 treatment with convalescent plasma. Peter Marks, AB3XC, the physician leading the team at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration overseeing COVID-19 vaccines, treatment and testing. Les Kramer, WA3SGZ, developer of prosthetic devices for lower limbs, and Roy Llewellyn, W7EL, author of the EasyNeck antenna modeling software that has set standards for ham radio antenna design. The results of two spring section manager elections were determined when the ballots were counted at ARRL headquarters on Tuesday, May 24, 2022. Because no nominations were received by the original nomination deadline of September 10, 2021, it was necessary to re-solicit nominations for the Delaware section manager position. Joseph Gribb, KI3B, a resident of Bear, Delaware, was appointed interim Delaware section manager in January 2022 until the election could be held. John Ferguson, K3PFW, a resident of Georgetown, received 162 votes, and Gribb received 96 votes. Ferguson will begin his 18-month term instead of a two-year term as section manager on July 1st.
In Indiana, Bob Burns, AK9R, received 625 votes, and incumbent section manager Jimmy Mary, KC9RPX, received 344 votes. Burns, a resident of Brownsville, will begin his two-year term on July 1st. Mary, a resident of Ellettsville, has served as section manager for the past four years. Wisconsin will have a new section manager on July 1st. Jason Spetz, KC9FXE, a resident of Menominee, was the sole nominee. Spetz will take the reins of the section's field organization from Patrick Moretti, KA1RB. Moretti, a resident of Dowsman, decided not to run for a new term of office after serving as section manager since 2016. Scott Roberts, KK4ECR, the only nominee for the Northern Florida section, will become section manager on July 1st. He has been serving as the assistant section manager and public information coordinator for the section. He'll succeed Kevin Bess, KK4BFN, who decided not to run for a new term. Bess, a resident of Edgewater, has been section manager since 2018. The following incumbent section managers who did not face opposition were declared re-elected and will begin new terms on July 1st. Thomas Beeb, W9RY in Illinois, Philip Dugan, N1EP in Maine, David Kidd, KA7OZO in Oregon, James Armstrong, NV6W in Santa Clara Valley, California, and Paul Gayette, AA1SU in Vermont. ARRL extends its thanks to all incumbent section managers for their past valued service, and congratulations to those who will take office beginning on July 1st. The June edition of the Magpie magazine features an article about amateur digital television and interviews radio amateur Dave Crump, Golf 8 Golf Kilo, Quebec, who first got his amateur radio licence at the age of 14. Dave Crump is no couch potato. In fact, he much prefers it on the other side of the TV set. Since his early years, he has had a passion for amateur television. Starting with analogue home-built equipment, his projects have raised him up to be a key player in the British Amateur Television Club. His latest project, Portsdown 4, brings the new world of digital television transmission to a wider audience than ever before. Dave said that he was inspired by the desire to reproduce a capability that a few years ago would have occupied half a room and cost hundreds of thousands of pounds, and replace it with something cheap and portable that could be used by himself and fellow amateur television enthusiasts. You can download the free Magpie magazine PDF from magpie.raspberrypi.com. Magpie is Mike Alphagolf, Papa India. Seek out issue number 118 and head for the article by P.J. Evans on page 8. You can find out a lot more about amateur television by visiting the British Amateur Television Club website at batc.org.uk and you can find them on Twitter at batconline. Freemasons of the Sequin Level Lodge number 140 located in Newington, Connecticut, recognized ARRL with a presentation on Thursday, April 7, 2022. The special recognition was organized and led by the Lodge's worshipful master, John Fasson, AA1EZ. Fasson is also a member of the ARRL staff, serving as a membership services representative in the membership, marketing, and communications department. Faison and his fellow Masons organized the event to recognize ARRL for its contribution to the Newington community and its role in serving ARRL members and radio amateurs worldwide. Newington Mayor Beth Del Buono participated in the presentation, issuing an official town proclamation honoring ARRL. 
The honors bestowed on ARL were accepted by a representative group of the headquarters staff, members that included Assistant Member Services Manager Kim McNeil, KM1IPA, Member Services Manager Yvette Vinci, KC1AIM, Director of Emergency Management Josh Johnston, KE5MHV, Director of Operations Bob Nauman, W5OV, and Director of Public Relations and Innovation, Bob Inderbitzen, NQ1R. Inderbitzen thanked the Masons and Mayor Del Bono. Inderbitzen also shared some background about ARRL's presence as a Newington fixture since 1938. While ARRL was established in Hartford in 1914, the association settled in Newington when construction started on the new headquarters station in 1937 on its current seven-acre site. Moving ARL station to Newington followed President Hiram P. Maxim's death in February of 1936 and the Great Flood in New England that destroyed the station, located in Hartford a month later. The new station opened in 1938, operating with Maxim's call sign, W1AW, which was granted to ARRL by the FCC as a permanent memorial to them. The station's little brick building at its antenna farm stood alone on the main street in Newington, until 1962, when ARL relocated its administrative headquarters into a newly constructed building on the same property. Interbitson also highlighted the leading role of ARRL and its members and how they've made to the advancing of amateur radio for more than a century. For many radio amateurs around the world, ARRL headquarters in Newington might as well be the center of our universe, he said. ARRL is devoted to the greatest hobby in the world. Originating from Albany, New York, and distributed worldwide, you are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. I will endeavor in every moment to speak English, but I can't promise I will succeed. (laughs) I'll just try, okay? I'll do my best. If If I get too geeky, you know, just say, hey, you're too geeky, man. You're too geeky. Good news from the Department of Justice They're no longer going to prosecute security researchers. What? Yes, apparently the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is, you know, a very uh, kind of strict law, is often used uh, against legit security researchers. I know a few. Uh, I know one guy's gone to jail for nothing more than uh, probing his company's system and then telling the company, hey, you got a problem. See, that's the thing. Companies don't like to hear that. They ought to learn, though, right? If you've got a flaw in your system and somebody discovers it, you ought to say, hey, thank you. In fact, you might even want to cut them a few bills and say, we appreciate it because you've been saved from a fate worse than death. A data breach, of course, is a very well-known and beloved figure in the community who actually was prosecuted using the CFAA, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, for doing nothing more than liberating academic documents that he had legitimate access to, publishing them, because, uh, you know, that's kind of a 
little scam that's going on. These, these academic papers, which are of great value to us as a society in many cases, are often hidden behind expensive paywalls, even though in many cases we paid for the research through government funding. Aaron Schwartz, who did many great things, liberated a few of them, and uh, the feds went after him. He ended up killing himself because he was facing a million dollar in fines and uh, 35 years in prison, two counts of wire fraud, 11 violations of the CFAA. <sighs> he was offered a plea bargain that would have given him six months in federal prison, declined it. This is back in 2013. Very sad. Very, very, very sad. He was arrested by MIT police. MIT police. So... This is actually a big story. You would think, well, yeah, we shouldn't prosecute people who are doing legitimate uh, security work. But it has really put a chill on security research. People are afraid of going to jail or paying millions of dollars in fines for simply finding flaws. It is very important that this happen. Deputy Attorney General Lisa O. Monaco said in a statement, computer security research is a key driver of improved cybersecurity. Well, yeah. The department has never been interested in prosecuting good-faith computer security research as a crime. Some may dispute. Today's announcement promotes cybersecurity by providing clarity for good-faith security researchers who root out vulnerabilities for the common good. We'll see, but good. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of what goes on in uh, society really comes from a fear of technology. The new is scary. And so... Uh, because it's scary, we kind of maybe overreact sometimes. For instance, uh, the New York State Attorney General is investigating Twitch, Discord, and other social media because the evil, evil person who committed those atrocities in Buffalo posted, tried to post a video of it as he was doing it in Twitch. Twitch shut it down as, almost immediately. I think only 40 people saw it on Twitch. He had a Discord, which is a chat kind of system. We have a Discord uh, chat for uh, the show, for all of our shows. Uh, it's very easy. To, it's free. It's open. It's very easy to create a chat room. He apparently, before he did it, he created a chat room with as many as 15 people joined to say, here's what I'm going to do. Now, admittedly, you should go after those 15 people because they knew ahead of time what he was about to do. Yeah, absolutely. But is it uh, is it Twitch's fault or Discord's fault because he used those platforms? And if it is, if you think it is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, look, this was a horrific thing, but it is not Discord's fault or Twitch's fault. But uh, the New York State Attorney General has launched an investigation. Launched an investigation. Okay, fine. I think the First Amendment protects, you know, the regulation of speech by the government. However, that's not going to stop government from trying to regulate speech. The EU is proposing and probably will adopt a very strict law... For very, you know, for noble reasons, this is how it always is, though, right? They come up with a noble pretext so you can't say anything about it, and then they end up using it to snoop on us. The noble pretext is, well, we want to ch stop child sexual abuse material. So the EU is saying that all service providers, all service providers have to monitor all traffic looking for both child sexual abuse material, pictures and things, and grooming behavior. And now the problem is that a lot of providers, including f uh, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Signal Messenger, are end-to-end -end encrypted. They're designed intentionally to, pre to preserve the privacy of people on these messaging systems. 
if this law becomes, uh, you know, it becomes a fact, if this proposed law becomes a fact in the EU, all of these companies would be responsible. And by the way, the EU specifically says doesn't matter if it's encrypted. You still have to look into it. Well, then it's not encrypted. Only, you might say, oh, only the company can see it. Well, guess what? That doesn't last long. If there's a backdoor, if there's keys to encryption, eventually the bad guys get it. Now, nobody's going to say, and I'm certainly not going to say, oh, you know, we don't need to go after child sexual abuse material or, or groomers. No, we do. But, but law enforcement really doesn't like it. They call it going dark. They don't like it that they can't see every single thing that's happening everywhere all the time. And they act as if they have that this, this new thing called encryption is going to make it impossible for them to do their jobs. But of course, if you think about it, technology has given law enforcement far more tools than ever before. Location materials being sold about us all the time to law enforcement without a warrant all the time. Law enforcement has actually a very good picture of what's going on, much better than the pre-technological era. You know, before technology, you know, you could call somebody and plan a crime. Oh, I guess they could do a wiretrap. Well, that's fine with a warrant. Okay. But then you could go over to his house and talk about it. Or maybe stand out in the field and talk about it. There have always been ways to communicate without the snooping of law enforcement. For law enforcement to say, well, we can't allow any any communication between people without our being able to watch it is a problem. And they're going to use, you know, excuses like, well, we got to stop child abuse because nobody's going to nobody's going to say, oh, yeah, no, don't. You know, that's it. Everybody's going to applaud that motive. But as uh, Ronald Reagan used to say, watch your wallets. Well, it's not about wallets. Watch your communications, because really what they want is they want a perfect picture of everything the citizenry is up to at all times. That is absolutely not the intent of the founders, the intent of the Fourth Amendment, the intent of uh, any democracy, and yet that's what they want. And watch, because it's going to happen in the EU, and I predict, well, it's always been moves to make it happen here. Just something to be aware of. So good. I'm glad the, uh, the Fed say, well, we're not going to prosecute legit security researchers. We'll see. And I don't think, you know, investigating Twitch and Discord is going to do anything to prevent mass shootings. They're not, or 4chan, they're not critical to this. That's not the direction to go to stop it. What do you think? Do, do you deserve a modicum of privacy? Uh, let's see, what else can we talk about? Cookies were invented way back in the early days of the World Wide Web uh, by the folks at Mosaic, which was, you might remember, one of the very first browsers. And it makes sense. They had to solve this problem. You visited the site once before or many times before, how can the site remember your previous visit, perhaps save the last page you visited or your shoe size if you buy shoes there, that kind of thing. And, of course, one way to do that was for the site to keep track of it. But sites have tens of millions of users, many more in some cases. They don't want to keep all that information. Plus, there's a security concern with them keeping the information. So instead, they let you save it. It's your computer. It's your browser. And it's just like when you save settings, you change your settings in Microsoft Office and you save them. It saves it on the hard drive. Mosaic called them persistent client-side state information, PCSSI. And if you break it down and you think about it, that's what it is. Persistent, doesn't go away. Client-side, you're the client. That's you instead of server-side. That's the site. So client-side. State is what we're saving. We're, you're the state of the world, the state of play, the state of what's going on, who you are, 
you know, what shoe size you are. That's all the state information, obviously. So PCSSI, I think they should have called them Pixies. I think they missed a bet, but they didn't want to call it PCSSI. They thought, well, we need a, a catchy, cute name. They call them cookies. And I think it comes from, you know, the probably Hansel and Gretel. Remember, they left breadcrumbs as they, as they went to the witch's house so they could find their way home. It's kind of like that. It's crumbs from your visit that are left behind. The name took. And unfortunately, there is one potential security risk with cookies. It's, it's not really the biggest privacy issue out there by far, but it's the one everybody's aware of. And it comes from something called third-party cookies. When Mosaic created the description of cookies and what cookies are for, they said something really important. They were kind of aware of the privacy thing. Only the site you're visiting can read its cookies. You know, They didn't want you to go to the Starbucks site. Starbucks saves your favorite drink. And then when you go to Pete's Coffee, have Pete know what your favorite Starbucks drink is. So they said in the specification, and it's still the case, only the site you're visiting can read that cookie. So only Starbucks knows what your favorite drink is. Pete's can't tell. Pete's can't even tell you've been to Starbucks. So, that you know, you, you, you know they don't want you to go to Pete's and Pete says, hey, well, I see you're a Starbucks customer. Let me offer you a certificate, a coupon. No. So they're, they're very good rules. Unfortunately, companies like Facebook figured out a way around the rule. You ever see the Facebook like button? Well, that little like button is coming from Facebook. That like button is Facebook. It can set a cookie. And it knows where it is. So when you go to Starbucks, even if you don't click the like button... That's a little spy hole for Facebook. And they say, ah, I see you're in Starbucks. And they save a cookie. Now Facebook knows you've been to Starbucks. Facebook can share that with anybody else if they have a like button. And so on and so on and so on. That was a little leak that, of course, Facebook figured out. They call those third-party cookies. So the cookies Starbucks sent when you visited Starbucks, those are first-party cookies. Those are okay. The problem is third-party cookies. And I do recommend you disable third-party cookies in, in every browser because that's all that is. It's just, it's just a, a, a little bug on there. And you notice there are lots of them now, a little bit of you know, image or whatever on there that comes from another server. That gives, that, that's the loophole that lets that server keep track of what you're visiting. You don't want them to follow you around on the web. You want to disable third-party cookies. Unfortunately, when the EU made a law against cookies, <laughs> they didn't understand that. And they, and they required in the, uh, the e-privacy e directory, the EU cookie law, they required that every site notify you it was saving cookies. Yes, it is. Every site uses cookies. If a site... If anything is going to persist from visit to visit on a site, it's going to have to do it in cookies. So it's it's a complete waste of your time, your cognitive energies to put those cookie banners up. That's It's solving the wrong problem. Incredibly annoying. <sighs> if you go to uh, my personal blog, I have a kind of snarky, <laughs> snarky cookie uh, thing. I used to say, yeah, like a lot of other sites, I use cookies. Get over it. I've, I have finally got rid of that. Because you have to, by the way, you got to put up this announcement if you want visitors from the EU. So now I say, hey, I use a cookie. I use one, on my personal blog, there's only one cookie. That's so you can say whether you want it in light mode or dark mode. The only way I can do that is by saving a cookie. That's how I remember what mode you like when you visit my site. So, so now I say, hey, I do use cookies for your light and dark mode setting. 
And then I follow the law. I have a button that says learn more. It takes you a page that learns all about cookies. And then a button that says, okay, you know, hide this banner so I don't see it again. By the way, you know how it knows that you say uh, okay or not okay? It sets a cookie. Of course it does. Anyway, I'm glad you were here and I'm here and I'll be here next week. And I hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. Over and out. In December 1967, I was still almost two years away from getting my ham ticket. However, I was an avid shortwave listener and a casual CBer. For Christmas that year, my parents gave me a Panasonic RF5000A, a huge portable radio that covered AM, FM, and the full 1.6 to 30 megacycle shortwave spectrum in eight bands. The radio weighed 20 pounds and took eight C-cells. It was the greatest Christmas present I ever received. My birthday was three days later, and that gift was rather modest, but still nice. It was a subscription to Electronics Illustrated. Electronics Illustrated was similar in style to Popular Electronics. It had separate columns for ham radio, CB radio, and shortwave listening. It also had regular features on stereo receivers, tape recorders, and other non-radio electronics topics. It was a bi-monthly magazine coming out only six times per year. Still, it was one of my favorite magazines for three reasons. Tom Nitel, K2AES, Wayne Green, W2NSD, and Charles Rodriguez. Tom Nitel, then K2AES, now W4XAA, at that time was the editor of S9 Magazine, a CB-oriented publication that existed from around 1963 to about 1982. In Electronics Illustrated, Tom wrote a column called Uncle Tom's Corner in which he answered questions from readers. The answers ranged from serious to funny to sarcastic to downright critical. Tom was always a strong proponent of CB radio and his columns often drew the wrath of QST. He pulled no punches in answering back in the pages of Electronics Illustrated. Once, a reader took him to task for his anti-ARRL comments. You should have more respect for an organization that was founded in 1914, the reader wrote. Tom's answer, I don't care when they were founded. I just want to know when they will be losted. Tom, in addition to his column, also wrote many articles for the magazine. Wayne Green, W2NSD, who was the editor of 73 Magazine, wrote the ham column. At a time when QST was still concentrating on HF, tubes, and CW, Wayne was talking about VHF and FM. I first learned about 2-meter FM from Electronics Illustrated. Like Tom, Wayne didn't pull any punches and was a frequent critic of QST. 
He also attacked some sacred cows in ham radio. I remember one column which started, I think, with the words, Behold the modern DXer. He went on to describe the typical DX enthusiast and then proceeded to criticize the entire DX process. The column never would have made it to the pages of QST. His columns, like his monographs in 73 magazine, were humorous and had to be taken with a large grain of salt. Electronics Illustrated was the only magazine, to my knowledge, that contained both Wayne Green and Tom Nitell. I remember one great debate between Tom and Wayne over the proposed hobby class of amateur radio license that would allow privileges on 220 megahertz only. It was the forerunner of the communicator class proposed a few years later. I don't remember what sides Tom and Wayne took, but it made for very interesting and entertaining reading. By far, however, my favorite section in Electronics Illustrated belonged to Charles Rodriguez. Does the name ring a bell? No? Okay, here's another clue. Over and out. You still don't recognize it? Unfortunately, you are not alone. Charles Rodriguez was a first-rate cartoonist. He was able to combine superior artwork, a dark, rich humor, and knowledge of the ham, CB, shortwave, and electronics world to create outrageously funny cartoons in the over-and-out section of Electronics Illustrated. Whenever the magazine came in, I turned first to Over and Out. It has been at least 33 years since I saw his radio cartoons, but many of them are etched forever in my memory. Here's 11 examples. 1. A distraught man standing in front of a burning house, begging the firefighters to save the QSL cards on the wall. Number 2. Two inmates sitting in a prison cell. One is in front of a CB radio, with the coax going out through the barred windows. He turns to the other inmate and says, What channel is the grapevine on? Number three. Two FCC engineers entering the FCC office. They are wearing Joe Friday-type suits with hats. One FCC says to the other, Yes, it was a good week. We got two whisperers, three whistlers, a yodeler, and a woody woodpecker. Number four. A man standing in the doorway of his house facing the same two FCC engineers. He has a look of shock and surprise on his face as he says, Using CB as a hobby? Me? His car is covered with CB slogans and huge antennas. His house has CB signs all over it. But the best part was the fact the house was entirely within the footprint of a huge tower that was probably several hundred feet tall. Number five, a man is standing in front of his house guests. They are bored to tears. He is pointing to one of hundreds of QSL cards on the wall. He says, presumably in a boring monotone, It was 3 a.m. I was tuning around the 20-meter band. I heard some chanting, a sort of Arabic. Slowly I adjusted my antenna tuner. Number six, a moving van in front of a house. While some movers carry out furniture, two others struggle with an entire wall covered with QSL cards. The owner, with a smug smile, watches. Number seven. A large, coarse, burly man is standing in a radio store. His jacket proclaims him the king of Channel 22. 
He is holding one of the store clerks by the throat and yelling, Don't you guys ever sell any more Channel 22 crystals. You understand that? Number eight, a party. On the wall is a sign stating something like Tri-City CB Club. One man is dressed in a Batman-type costume, complete with mask and cape. The costume proclaims him the Phantom of Channel 9. Two irate men stand in a corner glaring at the masked man. One says to the other, it's guys like him who give CB a bad name. Number 9. An elderly couple stands in front of a stereo store. The sign says, Senior Special. Why pay for sound you can't hear? Try our custom stereo system. 500 cycles to 5 kilohertz frequency response. Pay only for the frequencies you can hear. Number 10. A man standing in front of the doorway of his house. A look of embarrassment and shame on his face. In front of him stands the mailman with a look of anger and contempt. The mailman is tossing a Radio Moscow QSL card on the ground. Number 11. A Navy admiral is standing in the ship's radio room. There are about three sailors standing at attention with looks of fear on their faces. Behind the sailors, we see the ship's radios. The admiral, clearly furious, is yelling at the sailors, I've never seen such a sloppy outfit. High SWR, microphonic tubes, and two IF transformers out of alignment. Remember, this is from my memories of over 33 years ago. I haven't been able to find these comics anywhere on the internet. My descriptions don't do justice to these comics. Rodriguez was a master at pairing funny dialogue with witty artwork. The best way I can describe his style is a cross between Gahan Wilson and Charles Adams. Each issue contained about two or three cartoons, and they were all great. My parents renewed Electronics Illustrated each year as part of my birthday gift. Sadly, around 1973, the magazine ceased publication. Tom went back to S9, Wayne went back to 73, and Charles Rodriguez went, of all places, to National Lampoon, where his comics became R-rated. I also understand he drew comics for Stereo Review and syndicated two comic strips, Casey the Cop and Charlie. Charlie was a darker version of Ziggy in which a small man faced bizarre situations in an unfriendly world. Internet sources state that Charles Rodriguez died in 2004 at the age of 77. Somewhere out there are hundreds of his comics that portray our hobby with a dark, twisted humor. Like all classic forms of art, they are timeless. Maybe someday they will be published again. This is Bill Cottonelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. The newest version of the Global Radio Guide is out. In this 18th edition, 
author Gail Van Horn discusses familiar players and familiar places as the radio industry responds to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. With more details on the latest edition of the Radio Guide, we go to Steve Richards, G4HPE, who files this report through the Southgate News Service. The newest version of the Global Radio Guide is out. In this 18th edition, author Gail Van Horn discusses familiar players and familiar places as the radio industry responds to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the text, the author says that just as current world events have rekindled once buried feelings, it has also brought what many thought to be old technology back to the forefront. While internet access is one of the first targets of invading regimes intent on controlling the narrative, the vast reach of shortwave radio transcends borders and other forms of connectivity. It is déjà vu with a front row view. The guide includes articles about the international broadcasters on the front lines, as well as detailing information about the monitoring of utilities on the shortwave bands, including military communications. The 18th edition also includes its usual 24-hour station and frequency guide, with schedules for selected AM band, longwave and shortwave radio stations, plus listings of DX radio programmes and internet website addresses for the many stations included. Whether you monitor shortwave radio broadcasts, medium wave, amateur radio operators, or aeronautical, maritime, government, or military communications in the HF radio spectrum, this book has the information you need to help you hear it all. The current edition of the Global Radio Guide is available on the Teak Publishing website at www.teakpublishing.com. Teak is Tango Echo Alpha Kilo, and it's also in Kindle form only. Amazon. The current edition of the Global Radio Guide is available on the Teak Publishing website and via Kindle form only via Amazon. It's time for the weekly propagation forecast report brought to us each week by Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, Washington, who reports this week that although our sun is currently peppered with spots, average daily sunspot numbers slipped from 134.1 the previous week to 124.7 during this reporting week of May 19th through the 25th. The average daily sunspot number was a tiny bit higher, rising heartily from 157.3 to 158.8. A brand new sunspot group emerged on May 19th, two more on May 22nd, another one on May 24th, and two more on May 25th. However, a look at the total sunspot area, expressed in millionths of a solar disk, shows it declining steadily through the week from 1,500 on May 19th down to 870 on May 25th. AR3014 is the biggest sunspot group of the current solar cycle. There were plenty of solar flares this week, although no significant disturbances to note. The current prediction from the United States Air Force shows average daily solar flux dropping from 158.8 over the recent week to 130 for the next week of May 26th through June 1st. So looking ahead, the predicted solar flux is 128 on May 29th through June 1st, 120 on June 2nd through the 4th, 115 on June 5th and 6th, 130 and 140 and 150 on June 7th through the 9th. The predicted planetary A index will be 8 on May 29th, and it will be 5 and hold steady from May 30th through June 9th. 
Also of note this week is a possible meteor outburst. Debris from a shattered comet is approaching Earth, and it could cause a meteor outburst on May 31st. Experts caution that this is an uncertain forecast. The shower could be a great storm, a complete dud, or almost anything in between. Whatever happens, sky watchers in North America will be in the right place to see it. The shower is expected to peak almost directly above Southern California. Here's this week's AMSAT report from Bruce Page, KK5DO. Now that the hamvention is behind us, there's a bit less of a month uh, for the field day 2022. And as you know, there are bonus points for making a satellite contact during field day. I hope every group attempts to make their contact. The FM satellites are going to be as busy as can be, really hammered with signals. The very first rule is to never transmit unless you can hear the satellite. It's a guarantee that every pass of an FM satellite, there's at least one or two, if not a dozen hams using it. If you cannot hear the satellite, check your caps and check your frequencies. Next, if you're in the southern part of the U.S., your best opportunity to make the one contact is either as the satellite is rising from the south or is setting from the north. If you're in the northern part of the U.S., it is just the opposite. The reason is, is there is a fewer stations for you to complete with. And when the footprint covers most of the U.S., you will have to contend with everyone else doing the same thing. But once you make your contact, do not try to make a contact again. And I know that excitement when someone uh, then calls you. However, if you leave, you are allowing two stations that have not made a contact the opportunity to make a contact instead of just one that you called for. There will be more pointers in the next few weeks. Enjoy field day. Some of the oldest spacecraft are still going strong. Beyond use, they're often referred to as the undead. The interesting engineering website says that not all the stuff in space is junk. Some are true gems. Believe it or not, according to the Index of Objects Launched into Outer Space, which is maintained by the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, there were 7,389 individual satellites orbiting our little green planet at the end of April last year. That's 2021. Although estimates do vary. This number is only set to increase over time, with some estimates coming in at around 990 satellites being added to the mix every single year. If this is true, by about 2028, we can expect to see somewhere in the order of 15,000 satellites orbiting Earth. This includes the massive increase in satellites scheduled to be deployed by companies like SpaceX in their Starlink constellation. The rise of small CubeSats, Microsats and Nanosats and so on may also increase the number several fold over the coming decades or so. The article says that the vast majority of spacecraft, around 60%, are actually defunct and have been left to their fate. Often referred to as space junk, these long-dead satellites, as well as other pieces of metal and equipment, are increasingly becoming a potentially serious navigational hazard for current and future spacecraft. As an example, consider Vanguard 1C, which was launched in 1958. The American satellite was the fourth artificial Earth-orbiting satellite to make it into space, launching about five months after the more famous Soviet Sputnik 1. Powered by solar cells, all contact was lost with Vanguard 1 in 1964, but it still orbits the Earth along with the upper stage of its launch vehicle and is officially the oldest piece of space junk. 
Space junk is also introduced into orbit from the delivery vehicles used to get the operational stuff up there. This can include small pieces of metal or paint flecks, up to larger chunks of hardware like booster rockets and so on. Various initiatives are currently underway to help clean up the space around Earth. Some strategies involve using existing satellites to grab pieces of space junk, while others focus on deorbiting satellites once they've reached the end of their usefulness, sending them careering into Earth's atmosphere to burn up instead of floating around in space for decades. Not very sophisticated, perhaps, but it is effective nonetheless. A link to the full article can be found under this story on the Southgate Amateur Radio News website at www.southgatearc.org. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio The other day I was woken by the sound of a thunderclap. It was shockingly loud and came out of the blue. A few moments later it happened again. I exploded out of bed, rushed to the shack, disconnected the beacon power and switched the antenna coax to safe. After breathing a sigh of relief, everything went dark and with it came the distinctive sound of the sudden death of the uninterrupted power supply, taking with it my workstation. With nothing else left to do, I reported the outage to the power company, went back to bed, pulled the covers over my head, snuggled in, and surprisingly slept pretty well, despite the barrage of water hitting my QTH. The next morning, the power was back on, and I discovered that one of the residual current devices, the one that powered most, if not all the wall sockets, had tripped. I reset it, and much to my surprise, most of my QTH came back to life. I say most because after breakfast I had a moment to switch on my radios and see what, if any, damage there was. I could hear and trigger the local repeater, but HF was strangely dead. I could hear the coax switches turning on and off, but the SWR on the antenna was high and it didn't appear that the antenna coupler was doing anything. It's powered remotely using a device called a bias T. You use two of them to transport a power supply voltage along your antenna coax. In my case, I inject 12 volts in my shack and extract the 12 volts at the other end near the antenna, where it powers the antenna coupler. Occasionally, the antenna coupler needs a reset, so I removed the power, waited a bit, and reconnected. Still no response from the coupler, so I disconnected the power and left it for another time. A few days later, I had a moment to investigate further, so I went outside to check out the antenna and coupler. Both looked fine. I removed and reinserted the power, heard a click, but wasn't sure since a car came barreling down the road at the same time, so tried again, and heard nothing. At this point, I decided that this warranted a full investigation and started putting together a mental list of things I'd need. I wanted to test the coupler when it was isolated, I wanted to do a time domain reflectometry or TDR test to see if anything had changed. This test uses the RF reflection of a cable to determine its overall length and any faults like a cable break, high or low resistance and any joints. If you have a nano VNA or an antenna analyzer, you can do this test. It did occur to me that I didn't have a baseline to compare with, so that was disappointing, 
but I added it to the list. First thing to test was to check if the radio had been affected. I turned it on, did the same tests and discovered that the BIOS T was still disconnected, which could explain why I didn't hear a click when I tested a second time. Armed with a level of confidence around power, I tried again to trigger the antenna coupler and got nothing. Dread building over the potential loss of a radio in the storm, I set about swapping my HF antenna to another radio. At this point I was reminded of an incident 37 years ago as a high school student during a class outing. My wonderful and inspirational physics teacher, Bart Freidachs, took us to the local university where the head of the physics department of the University of Leiden gave us a tour of their facilities. He took us into a student lab full of oscilloscopes and tone generators and set up a demonstration to show us how you could generate Lissajou figures. He was having some trouble making it work, and with the impertinence reserved for teenagers, I quoted a then popular IBM advertisement from 1985, Off you stop the in, which loosely translates to asking if he'd plugged it in. I can tell you, if looks could kill, I wouldn't be telling this story. Suffice to say, it wasn't. Plugged in, that is. Back to my HF antenna. Yeah. It was already plugged into the other radio, so unsurprisingly, it was unable to send any RF to or from the first radio. Much like some of the advanced telepathic printers I've had the pleasure of fixing during my help desk days a quarter of a century ago. After all that, I can tell you that HF seems to work as expected. The beacon is back online and I have some work ahead of me to create some baseline TDR plots and perhaps a check-in, check-out board to keep track of what's plugged in where. That and looking for another UPS, since keeping the computer it's connected to up and running, at least long enough to properly shut down, would be good. What other lessons can you take away from lightning hitting nearby? I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. OCQ, OCQ, CQ Poda, CQ Parks on the air. This is November 3, Victor Echo Mike from Parks on the Air with your month ending April 2022 Parks on the Air update. Be sure to visit parksontheair.com for information about the program and poda.app for spotting, park information, leaderboards, and more. In Parks on the Air news, due to popular demand and a willing supply of sponsors, we have added three new DX Hunter categories to this summer's plaque event to complement the new DX Activator plaques. This brings the total number of plaques available to win up to 17. To have a shot at winning these plaques, join the fun on July 16th and 17th. More details are available from the plaque event menu item at poda.app. If you're a ham that happens to be into free and open source social media platforms as an alternative to the offerings of the large corporate interests, we're pleased to share that Parks on the Air and several of its volunteers now have a presence on the Fediverse. Look for us using the handle at parksontheair at mastodon.radio. And now for everybody's favorite segment, the monthly stats update. April's activity weekend gave us a nice mid-month boost, which helped to drive the monthly totals. We had over 2,000 operators out who did 11,281 activations from 4,333 parks in 34 different DX entities. The top activators for the month were the same two individuals as last month, N2 NWK, who this month did 278 activations, and W6ZD, who activated a mind-blowing 198 different parks. The top hunters for the month were K9ICP, who hunted 966 parks, and AD2CD, who made 1,598 QSOs, 
just edging out N3XLS. In Poda DX, we had a changing of the guard in Region 1. The activators in Spain came out in full force and edged out England based on the number of activations. Canada and Japan continued to hold their top spots in Regions 2 and 3 respectively. Our top DX activators this month were HI8DL from the Dominican Republic, who did 76 activations, and VA7DBJ from Canada, who activated 62 parks. Last but not least, let's check in on the progress of the Bailey Sprott Challenge. In 2021, N5HA and W9AV each managed to hunt a park every day. In 2022, we're following along to see if anyone else can match their feet. At 120 days into the year, we have three activators who have activated every day of the year, along with three others who may still be in the running pending log uploads. N2NWK, KE8PZN, KD4MZM, K4NYM, KB3WAV, and WC1N. The pool of hunters is now down to 36. To all of the Bailey Sprout participants, congrats on your success so far, and we look forward to seeing how you do now that we have passed the 100-day mark. This concludes our April 2022 Parks on the Air update. As always, the team at Parks on the Air wishes you safe activations and happy hunting. 73. The Irish Radio Transmitters Society reports that two military satellites recently exchanged more than 200 gigabits of data over a distance of about 100 kilometres using laser communication in space. Satellites generally do not communicate directly with each other. Instead, they use radio signals to transfer data down to a ground station on Earth, which then relays this data back up to another satellite. But these new optical terminals directly between satellites are considered to be faster and more secure. The two satellites, named Abel and Baker, were launched last summer by the US Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency as part of its Blackjack project. A much slower data transfer takes place under more challenging conditions when communicating with humanity's outposts beyond our solar system. NASA engineers are investigating anomalous telemetry data produced by the venerable space probe Voyager 1. They're now trying to debug the probe, a formidable task as data flows from Voyager at just 160 bits per second, and signals from Earth take 20 hours and 33 minutes to reach the probe. A recent NASA announcement states that the probe is operating normally, receiving and executing commands from Earth, still doing science and phoning home with data. But Voyager 1's attitude, articulation and control system, known as the AACS, that helps point the probe's antenna towards Earth, does not currently reflect what is actually happening on board. NASA says that the AACS data possibly appears to be randomly generated or does not reflect any possible state that the AACS could be in. But the good news is that the craft is still doing fine. There's no need to place it in safe mode and its signal is still strong. So it appears the main antenna is properly aligned, even if the system data suggests otherwise. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio.
Sadly, two well-known amateurs have become silent keys this month. A name well-known for decades to radio enthusiasts in Great Britain has become a silent key. Radio components of every kind imaginable were a specialty for John Burkett, G-8-O-P-P, who opened his first shop, J. Burkett, in Lincoln in 1960. With that small business, John served subsequent generations of radio enthusiasts, supplying hard-to-find components and surplus equipment, everything from military and test devices to wire and cables. John was also a friendly, familiar face at radio rallies, where he became a much-sought-out attendee. John became a silent key at the age of 93 on April 30th. His death was recently reported on a number of ham radio news sites. His obituary on the website of the Radio Society of Great Britain recalled how his shop evolved into more than a collection of components and equipment. It was a gathering spot for those who shared the bond of radio and the spirit of experimentation and creativity. His motto was, Not a piece of junk in sight. A post dated May 20th on the website Hackaday paid tribute to what was ultimately the worldwide presence of this very local shop, quoting Hackaday, Though many of you from beyond where this is being written may never have heard of him, the chances are that if you follow electronics enthusiasts from the UK, you will have unwittingly seen items which passed through his hands. Meanwhile, one of the designers of the Snowy Mountains Amateur Radio Club in New South Wales, Australia, has passed. Richard McKay, VK2HRM, didn't just help bring the Snowy Mountains Amateur Radio Club into being in the early 2000s. He served as its president to shepherd it through its earliest days. The New South Wales amateur, whose love of radio was ignited by his earliest adventures on Citizens Band, became a silent key on May 4th. An appreciation of his life, penned by Bill Steptoe, VK2ZZF, and posted on the club's website, said that Richard, an automotive engineer by profession, was also the guiding force behind the club's VK2RSM repeater systems. The systems operated on 70 centimeters, 2 meters, 6 meters, and had links to repeaters in Jindabyne and Nimbinabel. According to Bill's post about Richard, his health had been failing in recent years, and that curtailed his active involvement with the club. Bill wrote, Richard will be greatly missed as a friend and a great mate. Richard McKay was 61. AMSAT DL in Germany has reported that it has successfully received transmissions from TON-1, the Chinese Mars mission. According to a recently published report, this took place at Bachum Observatory in Germany using a 20-meter antenna and a GNU or new radio. New radio is free open source software used to create software to find radios. The report, written by Daniel Estevez, EA4GPZ, Mario Lorenz, DL5MLO, and Peter Gutzlow, DB2OS, said that the Chinese spacecraft has been successfully tracked using a real-time new radio decoder and has stored 10 months' worth of transmitted telemetry information. By interpreting the telemetry variables, the new radio was able to track the mission, which began with its launch on July 23rd of last year. The paper was first published for New Radio Conference 2021, held last September in North Carolina. 
The radio conference for 2022 is scheduled for September in Washington, D.C. And the South African Amateur Radio League History Project seeks help. Amateur Radio Forever looks forward to the next generation to ensure its survival. But the South African Radio League has begun looking back, way back, to better discover its identity. Sorting through the scrapbooks in the garage of a silent key has led some league members to conclude there's more to history than was previously known. That has led to a project at the National Amateur Radio Center, the league's headquarters, involving a bit of a treasure hunt. Amateurs in South Africa are asked to sort through old magazines and other materials they have that contain insights into the league and its predecessor organizations. Hams are also being asked to look at the programs from past year's annual general meetings, as well as photos taken there. The project would welcome original material or anything that can be scanned or photographed, or perhaps brought to the National Amateur Radio Center. If you have anything to share, please contact the center. Barely two years after its founding, the Pride Radio Group is hosting its first contest for hams worldwide during Pride Month, which begins in June. The contest, called CQ Pride, will be held from June 4th to June 6th. It is open to amateurs in single and multi-operator categories on all HF, excluding the WARC bands, of course, and on the VHF and UHF bands, and using all usual modes. Organizer Michaela, VK3FUR, said that the Pride Radio Group event is a celebration of diversity within the amateur radio community. Michaela said that small clubs and individual newcomers are especially welcome. Contacts can be on CW, phone, and digital, and may be made using satellites, repeaters, hotspots, and internet links, provided RF is involved in at least one hop. Participants may spot other stations, but not themselves. Additional details are available at prideradio.group slash contest. And the South African Radio League schedules a fox hunt for young amateurs. While some hams in South Africa may be hot on the trail of radio history, members of the Santon Amateur Radio Club, ZS6STN, have been more concerned with tracking two radio foxes named Fred and Fiona. The club has organized a fox hunting event for amateurs and their families scheduled for Sunday, May 29th. The foxes are carrying VHF emergency rescue beacons, but according to the club scenario, will be lost in the park and in need of youngsters to be their rescuers. Participants are asked to bring their HTs and antenna and don't forget your appetites for lunch afterwards. Hopefully Fred and Fiona will be found in time to share in the menu too. According to the ICQ podcast, Heil Sound Communications, well known in the amateur community and in the world of professional audio, has announced the rebranding of its ham radio division. The division website has been redesigned and its product packaging will also have a new look. The company said that having given a new look to its Pro Division last year, it realized it was time to overhaul the ham radio side. Heil Sound said in a statement that the changes achieved the goal that customers had requested, creating an entity separate from the pro side of the market. The company was established by Bob Heil, K9EID, decades ago. A change in ownership within the company was announced in February of this year, with Bob staying as CEO Emeritus and continuing his involvement in amateur radio product design. Marconi's Yacht will be back on the air with the special event call sign IY4ELE June 4th and 5th, 2022. 
For the past eight years, the ARI Fidenza Radio Club from the Italian Amateur Radio Association has celebrated a technical and cultural event at the Guglielmo Marconi Foundation at Villa Griffon in Pontecchio Marconi, Bologna, Italy, which is Guglielmo Marconi's birthplace. The purpose of the event is to highlight, at an international level, the historical value and meaning of Marconi's yacht Elettra, which was the moving laboratory of the great Italian scientist. Several important radio communications experiments were conducted on board the yacht by Marconi during the interwar period. Over the event weekend, amateur radio operators from around the world will have a chance to contact IY4ELE, operated by club members from a radio station located near the keel of the Electra. For more information, visit www.rfidenza.it. BBC News reports that an exhibition celebrating the inventor of radio and the world's first purpose-built radio factory opens next month. Anglia Ruskin University will showcase items from Guglielmo Marconi's factory, which opened in 1912 in Chelmsford, Essex. This year marks 100 years since the world's first regular broadcasts for entertainment began from the Marconi laboratories at nearby Rittle. The Chelmsford factory closed in 2008 and the site is now a housing estate. Guglielmo Marconi was an Italian wireless pioneer who helped bring radio to the world. He came to Chelmsford in 1898, at first developing machines to send messages via Morse code for ship and transatlantic communication. After World War I, Marconi's engineers started looking at broadcasting voices and entertainment. The exhibition will include the world's first radio signal detector and early receivers and transmitters used during the 1914-18 conflict. The display will also showcase the first-ever microprocessor, a mobile car phone from 1984, as well as a TV camera used at the Queen's coronation in 1953. You can read the full BBC News item with pictures at www.bbc.co.uk and look for Essex News in the UK England section. You are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a podcast at our website, www.twiar.net. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. One of the worst tasks we get stuck with from time to time is removing rusted antennas and mounting hardware from a tower. Prevention is just as much a part of this topic as is dealing with rusted bolts. The bad news is there is no easy answer to this problem, but let me share some of the tricks that I've used to deal with rusted bolts. Weather permitting, I go up the tower a week before the job date and oil the suspect bolts with a healthy dose of penetrating oil. And don't forget to warn the ground crew before you start. Also consider where you're parked, upwind or downwind from the work site. I literally flood the rusted bolts with penetrating oil from lots of angles. If possible, one more trip before the scheduled removal date to oil the works is also a good idea. Remember to spray the bolts from below you. Never oil things above your head unless you're wearing eye protection. 
On removal day, I bring a variety of screwdrivers and wrenches. Bring a selection of locking grip pliers with good teeth. Also, bring two hacksaws with spare coarse blades. Before taking a hacksaw up the tower, check to see if it's that type that easily flies apart when you flex it the wrong way. Sometimes several wraps of electrical tape can stop these cheap hacksaw blade handles from flying apart. Careful selection of cross-tip bits can play a big factor in removing rusted antennas. An impact driver is also a great screwdriver bit holder for the bare hand due to its size and therefore increased torque. You can cut mostly through rusted bolts leaving a thin strip of steel then when all bolts are cut they can easily be broken in fast sequence with a screwdriver or pliers. The other part of the worst case antenna removal is the antenna or mount usually becomes suddenly loose. Consider how you're going to secure the antenna or mount when the last stuck bolt suddenly breaks in half. The use of straps, ropes, or clamps to secure the antenna can help prevent a sudden surprise or injury to the climber. And there's nothing that I dislike more than a surprise or injury on a tower. One of the things to avoid is the sudden jerking of the antenna or mount you are removing, as well as the tower you're on. As you plan the job, consider and plan for the slow and easy removal of the hardware. Also, a plan for what will become of the tools in your hands when the stuck hardware suddenly breaks free from the tower. Just as big a part of dealing with rusted bolts is the prevention of the problem, and there are several ways to prevent it from becoming a problem. First, when you buy a new antenna, make sure all the bolts are stainless steel. Even our local little hardware store carries a good selection of stainless nuts, bolts, and flat washers. Zinc plating wears off after time, so only use non-rusting bolts. Coating U-bolts and screws that are not stainless steel with a healthy coating of grease can prolong life and stall rusting for years. This will require annual recoatings to prevent rusting. And brass doesn't rust, but it isn't very strong for holding antennas on towers. And paint can help, but it shouldn't be put on threaded parts. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9NP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. The Independence Amateur Radio Club will launch a high-altitude weather balloon from the lawn of the Oval at Riverside Park in Independence, Kansas, on Saturday, June 4th, 2022, at 9.30 a.m. The balloon carries a payload of radios and equipment that will ascend to 80,000 feet. When the balloon bursts, the payload will freefall to approximately 1,000 feet, and a parachute will deploy for a safe landing. Guests are invited to watch the setup, filling of the balloon, and balloon release. The altitude and position of the balloon will be displayed on a computer map at the Park Base Station by monitoring an amateur radio geopositioning transmitter in the balloon payload. The payload will also carry two onboard cameras, one recording the entire flight and one that will send live video back to the Park Base Station. Amateur radio operators will communicate with the balloon's radio equipment as it ascends toward the stratosphere, initially with local operators, but at higher altitudes, the balloon will reach operators hundreds of miles away. There will be an operator at the park base net control who will talk to these hams and record the contacts for name, location, and call sign. The flight path is unknown because the wind on the day of the launch will determine the direction. A chase team will follow the flight using the balloon's geopositioning transmitter and drive to recover the payload. Once the team is close to the landing site, a location transmitter beacon within the payload will give the exact position. The team will use radio finding antennas and techniques to recover the payload. If weather conditions prevent launch, the event will be rescheduled. For more information, go to the IARC website at www.n0id.com.
org. An activation by the Western Reserve Amateur Radio Club called Libraries on the Air is coming up, and it's happening on Saturday, June 18th, the Youngstown Public Library main branch in Ohio. The first-time activation is inspired in part by the working relationship that HAMS already have with the county library system, which has been hosting the club's holding workshops, license classes, and testing sessions. Just like any popular library book, the event has started to go into circulation. Amanda Farone, KC3FGU, is the club secretary. And she said that a club in Missouri plans to participate on the same day, activate one of their local libraries. There's also been interest from a club in Kentucky. Amanda went on to say that we would love to go to the nationwide at some point and get as many libraries activated as possible. Amanda said the event is being run in a style similar to Parks on the Air, but for now, paper logs and Excel-type spreadsheets are being accepted until a logging software can be developed in time for next year's event. Amanda said if the event gains enough traction, the club's activation can expand beyond the main branch to all 11 libraries in the county. Hams will be on the air there from 9 in the morning till 4 p.m. local time. For additional details, send an email to librarysota at gmail.com. And finally this week, the amateur radio hobby has no boundaries as there are operators all over the world. There are also no age parameters. Just ask Riley Lorang. The 10-year-old from San Jose, California, obtained his tech license at age 8 and his general license last summer when he was 9. He actually started getting into it as a first grader, but kind of let it go until the last couple of years. I always wanted to play with the radios with all the buttons, he said, when asked what got him interested in amateur radio. He definitely has had a great experience, communicating with hams from as far away as Russia, South Korea, and Trinidad and Tobago, just to name a few. Lorang owns four radios, according to his father, John, who was licensed in the early 2000s. I spoiled him, John said. He just decided he wanted to do it. The younger Lorang had to obtain the tech license online due to COVID, but when in-person tests were offered, he was one of the first in San Jose to sign up and be tested. This was his first time at the Hamvention. The Wagner siblings, Bernadette, Benedict, and Agnes, are a little more experienced in Hambenchen, attending their first in 2019 before COVID shut things down for a couple years. Benedict, 13, has been licensed for four years. Bernadette, 15, and Agnes, 12, have had their licenses for three years. I went to meetings with my dad and I thought it was fun. Benedict, 88FQ, said, His favorite part of amateur radio is participating in contests where he and others in his club try to contact as many people as possible from a specific place. Agnes, 88IR, took the lead from her brother and some friends who were ham operators. I thought it would be cool to talk to my friends, she said. I like to play with the digital modes. That's where the radios and the internet mix for an added dimension. Some of my favorite activities are ones where you don't have to talk a lot, she added. Guess why Bernadette, K8LWO, became involved. I just kind of got dragged along into it, she said. The other kids were getting into it. Also a scout with Scouts of America, Bernadette has noticed a trend amongst her peers. A lot of other scouts that I met recently are into ham radio, she said. However, the Wagners, who are from Stowe, Ohio, became involved, and that is fine with her father, Nick, AC8QG. It lets us do some things as a family, he said. Agnes and Benedict will be presented at Saturday's Youth Forum at the Hamvention. Greene County also has a myriad of youngsters involved in amateur radio. For example, Xenia, 13-year-old Zachary Klink, has been licensed for two years. He first became involved by going to a meeting with his dad, Eric. I like doing the races, he said. Zachary attends those races, horse, 5K, and marathons, and charts how many people pass by his station. 
This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on amateur radio repeater systems, streaming on the internet, or on great low-power FM broadcast stations like WGXC-FM, part of the Wave Farm on 90.7 MHz in Accra, New York, serving Greene County and the southern regions of New York's Capital District. Many of the news and information items heard on this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Audio News Service, and the ARRL Letter, the Southgate Amateur News Service, Steve Richards, G4 Hotel Papa Echo, and the Southgate Vibes News Service, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain, and Ofcom, the South African Radio League, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, and the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the New Zealand Association of Radio Transmitters, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the Rain Hamcast, Eric Guth, 4Z1UG and QSO Today, QRZ.com, the Tech Guy, Leo Laporte, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. With special thanks to all our weekly news sources and to you, our listeners, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. If you would like to write to us, you can find everything you need, including archive editions of the news service at our website at twiar.net. And now for all of us at This Week in Amateur Radio headquarters and all our news team around the world, this is Will Rogers, K5WLR in Fayetteville, Arkansas, wishing you 73.